I want to extend a very special welcome, as Mark did, to those of you who are visiting with us this morning. I know that Easter is always a good opportunity to either get back to church, which maybe you haven't done for a while, or maybe it's even just you like to, to visit church on Easter. And that's okay. We are very pleased you came to join us this morning on Easter, and I trust that you will hear the voice of God speaking to you as we share His Word. We're busy doing a series, as Mark mentioned, on how Christ was prophesied and revealed in the Old Testament. And we're going to continue that this morning as we look at a prophecy of Moses that he gave about Jesus. In the the earthly days of, of our Lord, there was a tremendous debate over who He was. And I don't think any of us can even imagine that the public prominence that Jesus had in the days of his ministry, um, you know, in our own day and time, we see certain celebrities rise to public prominence. Sometimes it's a political leader, sometimes it's a sports person. And, you know, for whatever reason, they come to the public eye and at some points it seems like every single South African is talking about a certain person, whether it's Oscar Pistorius or... Julius Malema or Angus Buchan or whoever it is. And the reasons why people are thrust into the public eye differ from case to case. Sometimes it's the words that they're speaking. Sometimes the things that people are saying are so controversial, so radical, that it thrusts them into prominence. I think Julius Malema would probably be an example of that case. The things that he's saying. And then, of course, the other is true as well. Sometimes it's not what people are saying, it's what they've done. It's their deeds that thrust them into the public eye. And perhaps Oscar Pistorius would be an example of that. But as you read through the accounts of the life of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one thing becomes increasingly clear. No one has ever even come close to the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. I mean, you can imagine in our day of media attention, what would happen if a man were to be wandering around claiming to be God. I mean, that's not too radical. There's many nutcases that have done that. But every single person, and not just a few, we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are sick, blind, lame, missing limbs, every time he touches them or even speaks a word, they're made well. Not only that, but he is raising people from the dead with certainty, with evidence, with witnesses, left, right, and center. You can just imagine the prominence that a man like that would rise to. Well, One of the things, of course, that would obviously be discussed if that were to happen in our generation would be this question, and this would be what would be discussed in all of the TV shows and the radio talk shows and the blogs. This is the question that would be on the foremost, you know, uh, uh, on the the lips of everyone discussing the question, who is he? Who is this man? Is he who he claims to be? And that, of course, was the very question that arose in the days of Jesus. But one of the points that we've been making in this series, Christ in the Old Testament, 
is that the Jews in the days of Jesus were unlike the people of our day in the little scenario that I painted for you. In one important respect, God did not send his son into a nation who were not prepared for his coming. 2,000 or so, longer than that, 2,100 years before that, God had already begun to prophesy in some detail the coming of this Messiah. So, we see God break into the life of a man called Abraham, just over 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, and he made a covenant with this man, Abraham. And in terms of that covenant, God made certain promises to Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would bless Abraham and protect him. He promised Abraham that he would make his name great. And that through Abraham, through his descendants, he would form a great nation. Not only that, but God also promised Abraham that into that nation of his descendants, God would send a savior who would be born as the seed of Abraham. And that's the same as the seed of the woman that was prophesied to Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. So this Savior would be born into this nation. And then through that Savior, God promised Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the New Testament then helps us understand it, interprets that promise to Abraham to mean that people from every nation on the earth would eventually receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promised blessing of Abraham. And so we see that God made these promises to Abraham and some of those promises depended on Abraham's having a child, which he didn't have when he received the promises. And so it was that Eventually, when Abraham was 100 years old and his wife Sarah was 90 years old, that God began to unravel those promises by miraculously giving them a son named Isaac. Isaac then grew up, and when Isaac was an adult, God again then miraculously stepped in because Isaac's wife Rebecca was barren, and he gave them twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And when those boys grew up, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and to Israel were born 12 sons. And those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of a great nation called Israel. And in fact, in the days of Solomon, that nation of Israel was the most powerful and the most wealthy nation on earth. God certainly did fulfill his promise to Abraham to make a great nation of him. But to return to the point... Those promises to Abraham were not given in a vacuum. As to say, they weren't an isolated incident that only were pertinent to an individual man and had no significance to the rest of history and to us today. On the contrary, the promises that God gave to Abraham were central to a singular unfolding plan of redemption. That God had in fact decreed before time even began. And as you read through the rest of the book of Genesis, into the rest of the book of, you know, the, the books of the Old Testament, into the New Testament, the Bible records how in space and time 
God continued to unfold his single plan of redemption. And as he did that, he continued making promises to his people, as he had made promises to Abraham. And as I said to you in our first week together, many of those promises were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. Now that's why I said to you that the Jews at the beginning of the first century in the days of Jesus were unlike the people of our day in the little scenario that I painted if if that were to happen to us. They were unlike us because God had for 2,000 years already been giving them a multitude of promises about the coming Messiah. They were supposed to be expecting Him. And that explains the debate that we read in the Gospels taking place amongst the Jews. You know, at many times in the Gospels, those eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, we are allowed to eavesdrop in on conversations like this when people were asking, Who is he? Who is this man saying these things and doing these things? We're allowed to eavesdrop. And it's. Uh, It's key to understanding those conversations as we eavesdrop in on them, what the expectations of the Jews were from the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so we see in some of these conversations that there was much confusion over who he would be, but much of that confusion was informed and just misinterpretations of the Old Testament prophecies. In fact, at one point, uh, Jesus even asked his own disciples, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they had answered, Some say you are John the Baptist, who had had his head cut off by Herod. Some say that you are Elijah. Now, why Elijah? Well, this actually illustrates the the point that I'm making to you this morning. That expectation of the coming of Elijah was in fact informed by one of the Old Testament prophecies. 400 years before the birth of Christ, a Jewish prophet named Malachi had said that before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, God would again send Elijah. And Elijah would turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of the children back to their fathers. And of course Jesus had said, that that prophecy was actually fulfilled in the life and ministry of John the Baptist. So they said, some say you're Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. And then, of course, Jesus had turned the question on his disciples as he turns the question on each one of us today. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And I wonder how you would answer that question this morning. And it was then that Peter, by the unction of the Holy Spirit, made his great apostolic pronouncement. He said, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Hallelujah. And so there were all these expectations in the nation of Israel as to who the Messiah would be when he came. And they were misguided and confused, but certainly informed by the Old Testament. And so what I want to do with you today is I want to turn to one particular expectation of the Jews that we read in the Old Testament from one of the prophecies there that they had about the Messiah. 
But before we go to the book of Deuteronomy where we read that prophecy, what I want to do first is I want to eavesdrop in on some of the conversations that were taking place in the days of Jesus and see how it is that the people were expecting this prophecy to be fulfilled. So first we will go to Mark chapter 6. If you can't go there quick enough, don't worry, I'll read it to you. Mark chapter 6 verses 14 and 15. And what we're going to do is eavesdrop in on a conversation that King Herod was actually having about Jesus. Now King Herod heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known. And there we see again the testimony that Jesus was incredibly famous in his day. Even kings were talking about him, wanting to know who he was and wanting to meet him. And Herod said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, now listen to this, it is the prophet. Or like one of the prophets. Now it's that phrase in particular, the prophet, that I want to look at with you today. Who was this prophet? Not one of the prophets or like one of the prophets, but the prophet whom the Jews were expecting. And where did that expectation come from? Now before we go and look in Deuteronomy as to where that came from, let's just eavesdrop in a couple more conversations through the Gospels that show the same thing. In John chapter 1, the people came to John the Baptist and they asked him, Who are you? And he said, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? There it is again, this expectation that Elijah would come from the prophecy of Malachi. And uh, to that question, John the Baptist said, I am not. Now that's interesting because it appears that John the Baptist himself didn't know that he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. He said, I'm not. And then they asked him, now listen, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And then, of course, they asked him, well, who are you then? What do you say about yourself? And he quotes another Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40. And he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Hallelujah. So, we see the same then. Uh, So they ask him, are you the prophet? We see the same in John chapter 6. After the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, those men, when they'd seen the sign that Jesus did, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And then, of course, they misinterpreted it because they tried to take him by force and make him king. They didn't understand that Jesus' role as prophet was not to be an earthly king. His kingdom is not of this world. And then in John chapter 7, we see the same again. Jesus is uh, teaching the crowds and he makes one of his most wonderful statements. He says this, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that promise still holds for you and me today, by the way. He's speaking about the gift of the Holy Spirit that all those who believe in Christ will receive. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard the saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. 
But others said, this is the Christ. And so there actually we see another confusion about the expectation of the Messiah, that they didn't know that the prophet and the Christ would be the same person. Anyway, so let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. If you do have a Bible, please go there with me. If you don't, you can snuggle up close to the person next to you and they'll share with you, I'm sure. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 to 19, we'll be reading together. And it's here that we're going to see where all of this talk about the prophet comes from, the source of this expectation of the people. Now before we read these words from, from Deuteronomy, I need to just give you the context of, of when this was spoken, because you cannot understand the prophecy of Moses about the coming prophet if you don't understand the context of the book of Deuteronomy. It's key. These words were spoken by Moses on the banks of the Jordan River very shortly before Moses himself was going to die. And then when he died, Joshua would then lead the children of Israel across the Jordan River and they would take possession of the land that God had promised to Abraham. So Moses is about to die and the book of Deuteronomy is one last sermon that Moses preaches to the people that he's now been leading for 40 years in the wilderness. One last sermon to them to try to encourage them and exhort them to stay faithful to God. Because he knows he's about to die. So, as we read this this prophecy of Moses, there's two things that I'm going to show you from this prophecy that help us understand our relationship with God today. And I'm going to tell you what those two things are in advance now, and then we will look at them in a little bit more detail for the rest of the morning. Firstly, from this prophecy of Moses, we are going to see that we need a prophet to bring God's word to us, and we need a mediator to bring us peacefully to God. We need a prophet. We need someone who will bring God's words and God's revelation to us. But we also need a mediator. Someone who will go between us and God and bring us peacefully to God. So that's my first point. We need a mediating prophet. And then secondly... Jesus Christ is that prophet and mediator. Jesus speaks and is God's word to us. And Jesus brings us safely to God. So those are the two points. We need a mediating prophet. Jesus Christ is he. Let's look at that first point. Our need for a prophet and a mediator. And we will begin now by reading from verse 9 of Deuteronomy Chapter 18. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel. When you come into the land, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer. One who conjures spells 
or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives out the nations of those lands from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess listened to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. The Lord your God has not appointed such for you. You know, there is a great thirst in the world that we live in for spiritual things. For spiritual contact, for spiritual wisdom, for secret power from the spiritual realm. And the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans in the New Testament, he makes it clear to us where this religious urge in man comes from. Do you know that in the history of anthropology, they have never once found an atheistic tribe? There is an irrepressible religious urge in the heart of man. And Paul makes it clear where that comes from. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that all people know God. We know God. Both within ourselves, we know Him being made in His image, which we know. We have a sense of that. And within our own consciences, we know that God is righteous. We know that we have broken His law. And we know that He will judge sin. Every human being knows that. And not only within ourselves do we know God, does Paul say, but he says, externally to ourselves we know God. That God has made His power plain to us in the things that have been made. Truly the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows His handiwork. And that is why no human being will be without excuse on the day of judgment. We know there is a God. And in fact, in some sense, we know this God. We know Him as our judge and we know ourselves to be rebelling against Him. We cannot escape the knowledge of God. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink in his exceptional book, The Doctrine of God, he said this, Holy Scripture presents a doctrine concerning God which fully maintains His knowability. For example, the Bible never makes any attempt to prove the existence of God, but assumes this. And it presupposes all along that man has an ineradicable idea of that existence. There is an idea of the existence of God in every man that we cannot eradicate. The fool may say in his heart, there is no God. But he who opens his eyes receives from every side the testimony of God's existence, of his eternal power and divine nature. We cannot escape our knowledge of God. And yet, because we have been corrupted by the sin of our first father, Adam, because the human race is entirely ruined by sin, Paul continues to tell us in Romans that though we know God, we don't glorify Him as God, nor are we thankful, which we ought to be, because He gives to us life and breath and all things. 
But we have become futile in our thoughts and our foolish hearts are darkened. Professing to be wise, like Richard Dawkins, we become fools. And we change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. We serve our idols and our images instead of serving the God that we know. That's the state of the human heart. We set up idols. Uh, John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. We worship science. We worship autonomous human reason, which you can't justify using autonomous human reason, by the way. It's a circular argument. We worship hedonism. We worship sexual pleasure. We worship money and, and popularity. And all these things, we worship them instead of worshiping the God that we know. Do you know that you were built to worship? You're built to worship. That's why, what an incredible thing it is to come, well, Megan and Marcus and their team are leading us in worship. And that's the godly expression of this thing inside of you that wants to lift your heart up. Not at a rugby game. Not at the next deal in your business. That ineradicable knowledge of God, that, that knowledge of God that we can't eradicate, that we know there's a God, is the reason why people run here and there and everywhere to, to try to find spiritual voices and, and meet God in all sorts of places that God has said, I have not appointed such for you. That's where all the religions of the earth come from. Every religion except Christianity, this is where it comes from. It comes from a desire within people to reach God without having to submit to the one true God whom the Bible says we know in our hearts. Now, I just want to clarify something before I continue. This does not mean that every human being has a knowledge of salvation. It does not mean that we innately know how to be reconciled to God. We don't. The knowledge of salvation must be given to us. And that's what Christ brings in the gospel. That is what we call special revelation. And that comes through the preaching of the gospel, the reading of the scriptures, and it has been entrusted to the church. That's our job, to bring the special revelation of the salvation of God to men. We don't know that innately, but we do know God, because God has made His power and His divine nature clear to us through the general revelation of the creation. Now, this is what sin has done to the human race. Though we know God, Paul continues, yet we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We suppress it. And we exchange the truth of God for the lie. And we worship and serve the creature, created things, instead of the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So we don't want to submit to God. <clears throat> and perhaps more to the point this morning, we don't want to confine ourselves to his revelation of himself. That's a very important statement. We don't want to confine ourselves to the way that God has chosen to reveal Himself. 
That's why people run to other religions. That's why people run to mediums and spiritists and palm readers and fortune tellers and horoscopes and Ouija boards. And that's why kids play glassy, glassy. But God has said that these things are an abomination to Him. Why? Because they are a rejection of Him and of His way of revealing Himself to us, which is through Christ. And I just want to encourage you, please never, ever even play with those things. Don't even read the horoscope in a magazine and fool yourself that it's only for fun. Because God has said, these things are an abomination to me. And if you've done that, from one sinner to another, may I encourage you, my friend, you need to repent. You need to repent. So I said to you that there is an irrationality about the sinfulness of man. It's irrational. We suppress the truth we know. We reject the God we know. Though we know He's going to judge us. It's irrational. That's what sin's done to us. We have a massive problem. Though we know God naturally, His righteousness, His power, His divine nature, and though we know our own sinfulness before Him, yet... Here's the problem. We are ignorant of how to be reconciled to Him. We have no innate knowledge of salvation. And so if we want to be saved, we have to hear the words of God. He has to tell us how to be saved. But He has forbidden us to seek His voice in all of the ways that we naturally choose. All of the religions of men, all of our spiritual activities, God has said, that's not how I've chosen to reveal myself to you. And then the one thing that we perhaps could do to get the knowledge of salvation is to go to the God that we know in our hearts, to go directly to Him for this knowledge. But that is impossible. It's the one thing we cannot and will not do. Because in our fallen nature, we only rebel against God. There is none who seeks after God, says Paul. No, not one. We have a massive problem. We know we're condemned by God. Our consciences tell us that. We don't know how to be saved. And we will not and cannot go to God directly. We are helpless in our sin. Helpless. We are heading towards the day of our death after which will ensue the judgment of a holy God. We have a massive problem. Now, do you know what all this means? It means we need a Savior. Do you know that you need a Savior? We need a someone who will bring God's words to us and tell us how to be saved. That's a prophet. That's what prophets do. And we need someone to turn our rebellious hearts back to God and bring us safely and peacefully to Him. That's a mediator. We need the knowledge of salvation and we need a change of our hearts so that we can have peace with God. We need a Savior who is a prophet and a mediator. Okay. Verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, 
from your brethren. Him you shall hear. According to all that you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. <clears throat> What's going on here? Moses here reminds the people of something that had happened 40 years before this. When God had taken the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to the slopes of Mount Horeb, otherwise called in Scripture Mount Sinai. He brought them to the base of that mountain. He called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and he said to Moses, I am going to give my law to the people. Before I do that, I want you to set up a barrier of sorts around the base of the mountain so that people can't break through in their spiritual curiosity and, and this is the words that God uses, and gaze at the Lord. Is that spiritual curiosity thing that we all have. And God said, if they break through that barrier to come and gaze at me in their curiosity, I will strike them dead. And you make that clear to them, Moses. I will reveal myself to people in the way that I choose to reveal myself to You know what? That counts for us today. You don't decide how to find God. You submit to God in how He has revealed Himself to you. So, they set up this boundary. And on the third day, the Bible says, God came down on the top of Mount Sinai in a boiling cloud of fire and smoke and the sound of a trumpet and he literally boomed the Ten Commandments out with his own voice. And the people heard and they were absolutely terrified. Now they were not only terrified because of that incredible dreadful sight that they were seeing, but they were terrified because when they heard God's law, it revealed sin to them. They knew they were guilty before this God. As you know in your heart that you are guilty before God. And they were terrified. And so they came to Moses at that time and they said to him, please Moses, please you go up the mountain and you get whatever else God needs to, to say. You get it and you come and you tell us and we'll listen to you and then when we want to say something, we'll tell you and you go then to God and you take our words to God. What are they asking for? They're asking for a prophet to bring God's words and a mediator to keep peace between them and God. And guess what? When the people of Israel asked for a prophet and a mediator, God said, what they have asked is good. What they've asked for is a good thing. Because they were beginning to understand the massive problem that we have. Do you know, as you sit here this morning, that you need a prophet and a mediator? Do you know that? Do you know you need a revelation from God of how you can be reconciled to Him and forgiven of your sin? And do you know that you need a mediator to come between you and God? To change your very heart that you might desire a relationship with God. That you might feel contrition for your sins. And that you might be brought peacefully to God. Do you know that you need that? Now that's what the Bible calls being born again. 
When this mediator comes and he changes your very heart. And you repent of your sins and you put your faith in him for salvation. And so here we see Moses now in this text that we're reading. He's speaking to the next generation of the children of Israel before they go into the land of Canaan. He's, for the last 40 years, he has acted as an imperfect, provisional prophet and mediator for the people. But what's the problem? He's about to die. And the people still need a prophet and a mediator. And the people are feeling the weight of this, that this man we've always put our hope and trust in is about to die. What are we going to do? And it's in that context that, that... Moses then, by the Spirit of God, he prophesies that God will meet this need. This is the problem with every priesthood of men, every other religion, and and even the priesthood of the Catholic Church. No man has the authority on his own to speak on behalf of God, inerrantly. No man. No one can tell you in his own authority how to be saved as they claim the Pope can. And no man can change your heart and reconcile you to God in peace. That's the problem with the priesthoods of men. And this is the problem that the Jews are now facing because Moses is about to die. What we need is a perfect prophet. We need one who speaks the words of God without error. And he speaks all the words of God that we need to hear. We need a perfect prophet. And we need an eternal mediator who is himself sinless and eternal and will not die, who always lives to make intercession for us. What it comes down to at the end of the day, my friends, is this, that we need a prophet and a mediator who is both God and man in the same person. We need someone who can bring God's word and revelation to us and take us to God. Hallelujah. You know where this is going. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, said Moses. What a precious promise. Because we need that. He will speak God's words perfectly to you. He will be, said Moses, like me. In that he won't just be a prophet like the other prophets who simply declared the word of God. No, he will be a mediating prophet. A prophet that actually steps in between sinful man and a holy God to make peace between the two. He will be a prophet like me, said Moses. And God will raise him up, said Moses, from your midst, from your brethren. He will be born into the nation of Israel. He will be a human-born Savior. And him, said Moses, you shall hear. Him you shall hear. There is a command here that when this prophet comes and when he brings the words of God, we are to submit ourselves to him and to his teachings. Have you done that? Have you submitted your life to the teachings of Jesus Christ? Now that leads us to the second point in the sermon, which is 
merely a declaration that Jesus Christ is this great prophet and mediator whom God promised through Moses. Verses 17 to 19, we finish the text. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. I will put my words in his mouth, said God, and he will speak all that I command him. And then 1,500 years later, Jesus Christ comes on the scene. He's having a conversation with one of his disciples named Philip. And he said this, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Moses that a mediating prophet would come and speak the very words of God to us, showing us how to be saved. And everyone who rejects Jesus Christ rejects the words of God and rejects in the process the salvation that God offers through the mediation of His Son. Jesus has made the way of salvation known to us. He said, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, He was taking the punishment of, us, of sinners just like you. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon Him. He was innocent. And yet he was punished. And the full weight of the justice of God for our sins was poured out upon him. So that we can be forgiven. He suffered in our place. But we thank God that's not where the story ends. This is Easter Sunday. And he came out of the grave. He's alive. He's alive. And he can take you, my fellow sinner. And he can turn your heart. And he can lead you to God. Have you had that? Have you had that this morning? And if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never asked for forgiveness, if you've never been born again, what better morning to get saved than Easter morning? Will you come to Jesus? Will you come to Him this morning? Will you lay down all of your religion and all of your own attempts to, to justify yourself and to reach God and to know wisdom? Will you lay it all down and will you humbly come to the foot of that empty cross and cry out, God, please forgive me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus Christ will lift you up, my friend, because He's alive and He will take you to the Father. Do you want that? You can have it today. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you've not left us without a revelation of you. Though we are lost in sin and rebels in our hearts, my God, yet you've come to us in mercy and you have shown us the way of salvation. You've sent your own Son to us, Lord, that we might be saved. God, thank you. How can we thank you, Lord? 
Lord, thank you that Jesus is risen from the dead. He's alive. And thank you that as we pray to you this morning, He ever lives to make intercession for us to bring us peacefully to you. That we can even come and pray to you, O Holy God, because we pray in His name. Thank you for the mediation of Jesus. And Lord, I want to pray for people here this morning, for your saints, that they would be encouraged and built up and left in wonder and awe and gratitude and with praises rising in their hearts for what you have done for us. And then I pray for those here this morning who do not know you, God, that this very morning you would turn their hearts and that you would give them a contrition for their sins that they might have faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, that they might become Christians. And Lord, I do pray all in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.